Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. Whereas series one of the podcast focused on making the decision to become a solo mum, series two is covering the process itself. Each week, I'll chat to a different guest to cover each step of the process of becoming a solo mum. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Matt Pryor. Matt is an NHS consultant doctor working at Newcastle Fertility Centre and also medical director at Dr. Fertility. He specialises in reproductive medicine and surgery and so is an excellent source of knowledge for all the questions I have about people considering solo motherhood. As much help and support that I can give to people using the Stalk and I Mum Tribe Facebook group and my social media, I think it's really important to have experts to discuss the medical side of things, which is why I always tell people to ask their clinic for medical information. But it is also good to have an independent view from a consultant who specialises in reproductive medicine. So that's why I recorded this episode for anybody at the beginning stages who wants an independent view on where to start when you're considering solo motherhood. Matt, welcome to the Stalk and I podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Do you want to give yourself a quick introduction before we dive into the content? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mel. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Um, So yeah, my name is Matt Pryor. Um, I'm a fertility doctor and I work up in the north of England in Newcastle, Newcastle Fertility Centre, um, as an NHS consultant. Um, I've been doing that for like a couple of years now, um, and I'm also involved as the medical director of Dr Fertility, who many of your listeners may have heard of um, as a fertility um, store, and also um, my involvement is we now do online consultations as a digital healthcare provider. Um, so we do consultations for, for people, for couples, for single people, anyone who's got any questions about their fertility, um, we, we do private consultations as well. So that's my role. I'm really interested in reproductive medicine and fertility, um, find it fascinating. And uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Ah, I've got lots of questions for you. So let's dive straight into it. So I suppose um, series two of my podcast is really about helping women who are considering solo motherhood, but literally don't know where to start. So the first thing I think um, that I want to help people with is what can be really challenging as a single woman in your 30s, you know, the years are ticking on thinking you know I might miss out on motherhood and I just have no idea about my fertility like everything might be completely fine or actually it it, it might not be and I just don't know so I know for me that not knowing was one of the biggest anxieties and actually I didn't really realize that I could have gone and had any checks to, to, to understand my fertility in a little bit more detail. So what is possible if you, you know, if you, if you want to understand your fertility a bit more, what can you do? Well, I think you're right. It is a complete minefield out there in terms of trying to understand what's going on with your health and, and fertility and where to go, because it depends. There's massive variations across the country as well in terms of um, what healthcare you can access but probably one of the first things to, to think about is just to 
um, look at advice, general advice for fertility. And there's a few things that you could probably like work out yourself without even seeing a healthcare professional to, to kind of reassure you that potentially your fertility is okay. Now, I suppose the first thing would be your periods. If you're having regular periods, then that's a really good sign that you're ovulating regularly and releasing an egg once a month. And that's something that's obviously very important for fertility. Um, and that is the probably the best way of sort of knowing whether you're ovulating to the point that if I see patients in clinic and their periods are coming once a month, I don't even do any other tests, blood tests or anything else to establish whether ovulation is happening because that's a sure sign that, that a woman's ovulating. So having regular periods is probably a really good starting point. If you weren't having regular periods, then would you, was that when you'd head into a GP then? Or? Yeah, so I think that a good place to go, and you could see a GP, even if fertility wasn't even on your radar, going to see a GP about irregular periods is probably necessary. You might find that, and it's very common for women to perhaps have a, a few cycles in every now and then that might be a bit longer, a bit shorter, but on the whole, if things are pretty regular, um, and it doesn't have to be 28 days, in fact, it's a whole fallacy myth that women have 28-day cycles. I think most women might have 29 or 30-day cycles, but around about that um, is, is pretty reassuring. If things are a bit all over the place, then whether you're thinking about your fertility or not, it's worthwhile going to see a GP. Um, so um, might not be able to see them anymore. It's over the telephone, um, but they should be able to talk to you about that and uh, and investigate things further. Right. So that's the first the first place to start. And even if your periods are regular and you're thinking about fertility, many GPs perhaps are a good place to start. It's something that's readily available in the UK on the NHS. It doesn't cost anything um, to have a conversation and say, look, this is something I'm thinking about. Some GPs are probably better um, qualified or more experienced than others to talk about that but you may find many GPs who are quite comfortable to talk about that they may have even had patients in a similar position to you previously and they can give you some good um, advice as to, to where to start so I think they're the, the first things to think about. I think what's a bit tricky about that is um, there's a real mix of experiences of going to your GP. Um, and my advice to everyone is go and see what happens. You may as well try because some are really open-minded and supportive and they try to do everything they can to help you. And others are a bit like, well, unless you're trying to have a baby with a partner, there's not really much I can do to help you. And unfortunately, it is just down to the individual um, doctor that you see. But I definitely recommend people trying. Um, you know, what, what have you got to lose? Exactly. You've got nothing to lose whatsoever. It's still probably quite easy to get an appointment with a GP. Um, it might not be a same day thing, but within a, a week or two, you should be able to get an appointment. Um, and just see where to start. They can give some pretty basic advice. Um, some of them might be very well versed in this and know exactly what to do and give you some good suggestions. You're right, on the other hand, it is sketchy and you might find that it was a complete waste of time, but you don't lose anything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the first place to, to start. And then, I mean, the way I always think about, sort of, I'm a simple person, and, uh, and getting pregnant should be straightforward and try not to overcomplicate things. But essentially, you need three things to get pregnant. We've talked about one, which is eggs and, and periods. The next thing is um, 
fallopian tubes so eggs and sperm need to meet and we can talk about that um, in a minute so that's the only other thing in terms of fertility that you might want to consider and if you've there's certain risk factors you can have for having blocked fallopian tubes which might mean it needs looking into but if you don't have any of those then the chances are as a woman in your 30s um, you're probably quite highly fertile as long as you don't have any other medical conditions things like that um, and if you do then your GP should be able to to address those before thinking about what to do next and what about um, the fertility test you can have around um, your egg count and AMH? Would you advise people to do that? I think that it's very trendy, these things now. And if you look online, in fact, you probably even find that if you're a woman in that age range, um, you will be getting adverts on social media popping up because people have targeted you. Looking at like fertility testing and fertility MOTs, and um, I'm a bit more sceptical about them because essentially they consist of like one or two things. So perhaps a, a questionnaire where they'd ask, identify are you having regular periods, which we just talked about, any other risk factors. And then essentially it's one or two tests that are associated with it. A blood test for a hormone called AMH or anti-malarian hormone and uh, an ultrasound scan to look at your women ovaries and to measure or count the number of follicles that are on your ovary um, and those two tests are the, the follicle count and the AMH tests are for want of a better explanation something called an ovarian reserve um, and kind of at face value it sounds like oh it'd be quite helpful to know what my egg reserve is um, but unless you kind of know what you're going to do with the results it can sometimes cause more problems than answers um, and perhaps we can talk about that that in a minute I don't know if this is anything you've had experience with before yeah I mean I think a lot of people have the results back from the AMH test and they're really low and then it makes them panic um, my understanding is AMH tests number of eggs but it doesn't test quality of eggs and the important part is quality and there's no test for that so the only time you know about the quality is it when you put it with the sperm if it creates an embryo is my understanding from speaking to numerous people about it yeah you're spot on with that and really i think the idea is and when amh was first used it looked very promising and the, it basically reflects the fact that women are born or as a girl the baby girl you're born with all of your eggs and even before you've had your first period you've actually lost most of them they just disappear that fact when I first heard it blew my mind. I think a lot of people don't realise that. I think it's, it's amazing, um, that fact, but especially that you lose so many straight away. So, yeah, fascinating. And then gradually, as um, you go through your reproductive years, the egg numbers uh, disappear all the time. And actually, probably only about three to 400 ever get released as an egg um, when you ovulate. Uh, and hundreds of thousands just disappear. Uh, until you've got a very low number left and then you go through the menopause. So that's the natural kind of history of things. Um, and what AMH um, does or ovarian reserve testing does is just give you a rough idea of how many eggs you have left. But, so that sounds like very kind of useful, but there's a big but attached with this. Um, it's not very good at predicting your chances of having a baby. So if you're 
you have a very low AMH or a normal AMH, if you're trying um, to conceive naturally, or even if using something such as IUI, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, even IVF, it doesn't predict the chances of having a baby. The thing that's most important is actually a woman's age rather than their egg reserve tests. Um, so they're not always necessarily that helpful. And having a low result doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have an early menopause. Um, the reason why we do these tests as fertility specialists is they're actually more helpful in um, when it comes to IVF treatment about knowing how the ovaries might respond to medication and helping to um, plan the right uh, amount of, uh, of medication to give rather than actually predicting anything down the line. So you're right, if it, a result comes back unexpectedly low, it can cause quite a lot of angst and, and stress, sometimes unnecessarily. So you've got to be a bit careful about that, those tests. And I think really you need to think about where you are in your kind of decision making about things. And if it's like, well, actually, I'm thinking about my fertility. Um, I'm in my early 30s um, and I'm not I'm thinking about it, but I'm not ready to take any action yet. Perhaps in a few years time then those tests might be helpful because if the result comes back low, it might suggest, well, actually, maybe you should think about it sooner rather than later. Um, but if you're thinking about going ahead with things sort of regardless, then um, then they may be not all that helpful and can sometimes cause stress. And they're probably, if you ever go for treatment, it will get repeated somewhere else anyway. So, um, so you've got to be a bit careful about some of these, uh, these tests. And it's probably worth speaking to someone before going ahead and, and getting those things done. So you can use them as a bit of an indication if you're planning on whether to wait or not. But if you get the test results back, it's not the end of the world. Exactly. Exactly. And you've got to be careful sometimes with some of these tests you can order online, you get the result back, but then there's nowhere to kind of discuss it afterwards. There's not the follow up. Um, and also it's sometimes cynically perhaps used as a bit of a, a marketing funnel for people who are offering egg freezing. So, um, so be a bit careful about where you're, you're looking for those tests. Okay, fab. Then the next stage is people who are like, okay, I've tried to meet someone, it's not working, um, I'm going to go ahead and do this on my own, but I've got no idea where to start. Um, so the first thing is then finding a clinic. Um, have you got any advice for people about how to go about finding the best clinic for them? I think, um, first of all, that's a really big decision to make, isn't it? And for yeah. any woman to kind of go, look, hang on a minute, I really want to kind of pursue this by myself. And so a lot of times I think people might even not be 100% on that and just want to explore things a, a bit further. Um, so that's that's something that I suppose as professionals, we should re recognise that. Um, and also, this is sometimes where you get the variability from GP sometimes. Some people might go, oh, hang on a minute, you should get a partner, be very traditional about it. But, um, but that's not necessarily right for everybody. Um, so it's about trying to find a clinic that's um, that's right for you. Now, um, the, probably the most important thing for most people is like location. So it depends on where you live in the country, um, or I don't know if you have any overseas listeners, um, but where you live is probably limits your, your chances or your availability. Um, and probably, well, I'd recommend the, the best place to start is um, a website um, called, called the HFEA and that stands for the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority 
and they are the uh, government organization that regulate all fertility clinics in the UK whether it be private or NHS they need to be regulated by the HFEA and they have a, a function on their website called choose a fertility clinic and it's pretty simple you put in your postcode or address and it will show you which clinics offer treatments and which treatments um, in your location um, so that's a good place to start um, your GP may even be able to refer you to so in some areas NHS provision is quite good and I know certainly in the northeast of England we're happy to see people uh, in this situation who are thinking about it on the NHS to see whether they need any investigations to have a conversation about what their options are so you may find that actually there is some NHS provision to have that conversation um, that's not the same all over the country um, but it is perhaps worthwhile exploring because before going to a clinic where and spending money um, and also you again got a question whether clinics are perhaps biased and trying to sell treatments as well um, it's worth looking to see what advice you can get that's a bit more independent and there are lots of places that, um, that may be able to offer that. That's, that's really reassuring to know that you know there are some um, NHS trusts that do that so I think hopefully that will motivate people to try at least first because um, again what would you lose from trying? Exactly um, but if that's not the case then it might be worthwhile looking to see what fertility clinics um, offer near you and then the other thing to consider is the third thing that you need to get pregnant, which is sperm. And what are you going to do about that? And is, is it an anonymous donor you're going to use? Is it um, a known donor? Um, and you've got to be really cautious because I think the thing we haven't talked about, we kept this all very medical, um, but one thing to be very cautious about is the kind of private donors um, who perhaps advertise on social media and, uh, and offer to, um, to donate sperm outside of the fertility and so that's something that um, is worth considering certainly it has a lot of implications um, not just from a health point of view in that the donor's not screened for any infections and things like that but also in terms of legal parenthood um, it would mean that potentially any donor who um, say donor in inverted commas um, who who donates privately don't wouldn't have the same protection in terms of they would be entitled to be the legal parent of any child born um, from there. Whereas if it's done through a fertility clinic, um, that should be all sorted out and, and not an issue. I think it's really important to say, because I've heard a lot of women talk about uh, putting a legal agreement in place to make sure that the donor wouldn't be um, the, the legal parent. Mm. And there is no such thing. There's no legal agreement that you can have. It just automatically they have that right. So I think it's yes. really important that people understand that. It's really hard. There's people in really difficult circumstances that don't really want to go down that route. But unfortunately, um, finances, it's the only option they've got. It is. Because it's, really I mean, it's, um, it is a really... Um, it's an expensive process, to be honest, if you have to fund it yourself. Uh, and we can talk about that kind of um, shortly. But it's not cheap to have fertility treatments. Um, even somewhere that is offering treatment and not really making profits, so like NHS centres that offer treatment for single women, it's still not cheap. And in fact, there's a very good article, I don't know if you saw it recently in The Guardian, um, I don't know if you want to, to link to it, um, of a, a, a columnist who... Um, 
has is in a same-sex relationship and was commenting exactly how uh, difficult it is in the UK, how it's made difficult, how it's expensive, and how sperm is expensive as, as well. And um, I think that's a real shame. It puts some people in a you know in a, a tricky position, making a, a difficult decision on how they want to do this, but what options they've really got. So um, yeah, it's difficult. So going back to then the clinics, one of the things that I thought when I was going through this process was location so what options are there nearby me and then the second thing I thought was success rates so I want to choose the one with the highest success rates so it's only now that I realize that that's probably not really one of the things that I would look at but can you just explain a little bit about success rates and statistics and how they're sort of um so what there's some there's a famous saying about statistics you can basically make them say whatever you want and that to an extent, that's sometimes true with fertility. Now, the HFEA on their Choose a Fertility Clinic do have some overview statistics, but they're quite out of date because they look at the chances of um, women having a baby from treatment in a particular clinic. And that's with IUI is based on, I think, per cycle. Um, and uh, for IVF, it's per embryo transferred. Um, and that's the... Um, the information that they will put on their clinic. It's also stratified by age, um, but many clinics, um, even sort of medium-sized clinics, so I say the clinic I work in is probably like an average size in the UK. It's not huge. We don't do thousands of IVF cycles, but we do an average amount. But it means that sometimes getting information for you um, that's applicable to you is difficult. So, for example, for... Um, women who are like over 38 or over 40 having IUI, we might have only had one or two women have treatment in, in the data that's presented online. So to actually give a, um, a realistic chance for you is difficult. And so comparing that from one clinic to another one um, is sometimes not always that clear. It does show outliers, um, but some clinics will use success rates um, in their marketing materials and on their websites, which may not be quite the same as what is on the HFEA website and can be, I don't want to use the word manipulated, but can be presented in the way um, to, to make their clinic look in a better light compared to other clinics. And this is probably even more so the case with private clinics and when there's a lot of clinics in, in a, a smaller location. So for example, South East and London, which is where most fertility clinics are located in the UK is a higher density um, so those things are all um, helpful one um, so statistics you have to like take a little bit with a pinch of salt there's not a massive difference between uh, clinics um, certainly you if you go to one clinic I don't think you'd have double the chances of having a baby than going to another one so success rates yes they're important but I don't think they're the be-all and end-all things that are perhaps helpful to look at are reviews. So um, there are some reviews from patients also on the HFEA website um, where they can give their clinic a, a rating out of five. NHS clinics on NHS choices, there's reviews as well. There's forums. Um, so you might be able to speak to other people that have had treatments um, at the clinic to, to get an idea about sort of how long the waiting list is and what the communication's like with the uh, clinic what the support's like so all these different things you probably want to take into account when thinking about um, where you're going to have treatment and yes success rates are important but 
I don't think they're, they're necessarily the number one thing. Um, success rate probably cost as well is, is an issue and that should all be available on the, the clinic's website but we might talk about this in a second it's sometimes difficult to exactly tot up exactly what the cost is going to be um, because you don't know um, how long it's going to take um, I think so it, it's so hard because all anyone wants to know is how much is it going to cost and you don't know what treatment you're going to need you don't know how much medication you're going to need you don't know how many tries you're going to need it's so hard when you're right at the beginning um mm. to, to estimate a cost i think one of the things um that solo mums can do is i've got a facebook group called the stalk and i mum tribe and if you go on there there's comments from other solo mums about the clinics and i think that's really good because some of it is about how much they treat you as an individual so some people have said that their experience is that they've been treated um they've been forced into a process for couples um and it feels like at every stage um the process was for a couple and they're trying to go through it on their own and for others they've said it's absolutely tailored to me and inclusive and i think that's a big um that's a big deciding factor and for me i um was either going to go to a clinic in london or in manchester because i could have been in either location and i called them and the one from manchester unsurprisingly was like hi how are you doing oh yeah come down have a chat and the one from london was a bit more like you know a bit more formal and i just walked yeah. immediately to the one in manchester and was like right that's where i'm going and it it sounds yeah. stupid in a way but for me that was like super important in, in a clinic that i felt comfortable there and they were friendly so mm. okay um so that's really good advice in terms of how to choose a clinic and then the next thing is then choosing a treatment. So obviously when you go to the clinic, you speak to somebody, to the consultant who will talk you through your options. But very often you, you have to decide ultimately if you want to do IUI or if you want to go to IVF. So I suppose the people who um, are right at the beginning of this journey, can you just briefly explain what IUI is and then versus IVF? So IUI is, it stands for intrauterine insemination, which is just a clever way of saying insemination. So essentially um, you would track your menstrual cycle, know roughly when you were going to ovulate and before ovulation, um, come for a procedure at the clinic I suppose it's a little bit like a smear test it's a specular examination a tiny little soft catheter goes through the neck of the womb and you inject prepared sperm into the womb and uh, and then go home and see what happens do a pregnancy test two weeks later um, and um, there's probably per cycle maybe about sort of a 10% chance on average that you get pregnant with a cycle of IUI would that and that's pretty much IUS. Would it be the same as having sex or is it more like... So we think it's, it's pretty similar. So the figures we quote is, so the chances with having sex is per month is probably still around about sort of 10%. Yeah. So if you look at um, if, if people are having sex about, after about six months, so equivalent to like six cycles of IUI, about 60% of women will be pregnant. So it's pretty comparable. So we think that uh, in our clinic, we quote that 
if you have six cycles of IUI, you've got about a 60% chance of pregnancy. That's about what you'd recommend because you'd expect that to be similar to normal. Different clinics have slightly different protocols for identifying when the best time to do it is, whether it's based on if you've got regular periods, you might just pick a day. You might monitor for something called the LH surge, which is done by weeing onto like a, a stick um, or, or like one that gives you smiley faces, um, depending on which brand it is, and, and then doing it after that. Other clinics may do ultrasound scans to look for when a follicle, which is um, when the ovary is developing an egg, it grows in a follicle. And you can see that on an ultrasound scan, and when it gets to the right size, you then will plan to do the IUI. So there's different ways of doing it, but the success rates are probably similar between a few. Um, it's sometimes quoted as that, look, it's not a very good treatment because the chances of it working per cycle is only, what, one in 10? might be a little bit more than that, but it's easy one in 10 to, to look at that. And you compare that to IVF, where depending on which clinic you look at and what success rates they're quoting that month, it's probably around about maybe 40% chance, and maybe a little bit less, depending on, on age. Um, and you think, oh, well, you compare the two, and IUI is obviously less successful than IVF. But the thing is with IUI is you can do it every month. Um, something you don't need medicines in the same way it's straightforward there's less risks associated with it and overall it is cheaper than having um ivf per cycle so you can't compare like one cycle of iui to one cycle of ivf so that's one important thing to to be aware of when you're thinking about which treatment to have and what would you would you say it's more like three cycles of iui cost about one cycle of ivf yeah that's about that about right so a cycle of iui probably just over a thousand pounds to fifteen hundred pounds i think that, that you probably might reckon recognize that and a cycle of ivf is roughly about three and a half four thousand pounds um but might be more depending on which clinic you go to and if there's other additional tests and additional add-ons or if embryos are frozen and complicated things like that can affect the price as well but roughly that's probably what you're looking at i think that one of the problems is because then you have to add on the sperm and tell mm. me if i'm wrong but i think you have to purchase a sperm for each iui but you only need yes. one lot for ivf so that can bump the price up as well yeah so that can make it more expensive you're right and it depends on the availability as well because this is one thing we've not talked about either is like choosing a sperm donor and that might be that the clinic that you go to might have donors that you're able to select from that clinic or you may choose to go to a sperm bank and uh, where there might be more availability um, but choosing from a sperm bank it's definitely worth having you need to have the conversation with your clinic first about which relationship they have with sperm banks because some clinics will only use particular sperm banks because they've had either bad experiences before with other ones or the bank says that it's this quality but when they thaw it out it's not as good as they thought it was and not suitable for IUI so it can get a bit complicated um, so definitely have a, a conversation with your clinic in fact if, if you're having any licensed treatment um, so IUI or IVF it's mandatory that you should have um, what's called implications counselling with a trained nurse or counsellor to discuss the implications of, of, uh, of fertility treatment and that's probably the, the best time to, to talk about not just the um, kind of emotional, financial, all the other implications but also about the, like, the logistics of, of what to do about finding a donor.
Yeah, and that's the advice I always give everyone because people start browsing for donors yeah. way, but then and then they get disappointed because they find someone and then their clinic doesn't use that sperm bank. So I always say the first thing to do is check which sperm banks your clinic uses and then only look for donors from that sperm bank. So, okay, so that's IUI and then IVF. What's the difference? So, so IVF is um, when the so IUI fertilization happens within the body. IVF stands for in vitro fertilization, which means fertilization outside of the body. Um, so that involves a process where would take medicines to uh, so that more eggs are developed, um, and then you that be monitored with ultrasound scans. You then attend the clinic. Um, and normally under sedation would have the eggs collected, which is a, a procedure that you have done. Those eggs would go to the lab and be um, mixed with sperm um, from the donor um, and then uh, left to fertilize. And often people get mixed up between um, something called IVF and ICSI. So whenever you put that like, IVF into Google or they do a news article or you watch it on TV, they always show the egg being injected with a sperm. Um, that's actually a special type of F IVF called ICSI, which stands for sperm injection. Um, and that's only really done if the sperm quality is not very good or you think there's potentially going to be an issue with the fertilization. Normal IVF is when eggs and sperm are essentially, it's a bit more technical than this, but essentially just mixed um, in a petri dish and, and left to fertilize in an incubator. Um, so that's the, the first step. And just with ICSI, um, because when you look on the internet, it says with ICSI that it's for usually used for um, issues with sperm quality, but you've just gone out and purchased this top quality sperm. <laughs> so then so many people say to me, how come I still need to, use, my clinic's saying I need to use ICSI. Why have I bought like the sperm? Why isn't it good enough if I have to use ICSI? Do you know why you would need to use it when you've purchased donor sperm? So I think that's definitely a, a, a good conversation to have with your clinic and you should ask this even maybe before purchasing the sperm because some clinics, um, and there's not really, in fact, there's not good science to support this, but to have ICSI and without a male factor problem is not really a recommended treatment. It's almost an additional thing that's being done that you potentially don't need um, unless they can give you a good explanation. I know there are a few clinics in the UK that only do ICSI um, and that's quite controversial um, because many places um, you would suggest doing IVF. The only risk that you have of doing, um, or one of the risks that you have of doing um, IVF over ICSI is that, like, it's very rare, but maybe only happens like once or twice a year you mix them together and all of a sudden like none of them fertilize and that's quite unusual to happen most of the time with IVF you get the same fertilization as you would with ICSI if it's normal or top quality sperm that's come from a donor um, so so I think you need to be quite wary if the, the clinic's pushing you towards needing ICSI without giving a good explanation it perhaps would raise alarm bells to me right so ask the clinic for the yeah now yeah okay fantastic and then if you don't want to get advice from the clinic because you know at the end of the day clinics are 
give, selling you a service, if you want to get independent advice from someone before you start this process, um, is there anywhere that you can go to get independent advice? So, um, I suppose going almost going right back to the start, um, like some GPs, if you, you had a good relationship with your GP beforehand and they gave some useful advice, they might be a good place to go. Or even an NHS clinic may have given you um, some advice. So they're places that you could go to. Um, sometimes people want a second opinion um, outside of their clinic. And you've got to be a little bit careful with this because um, you don't really want to get into uh, an argument with the clinic that you're in because that's not ideal treatment and often it is difficult when giving a second opinion to be able to without knowing all the information um, to, to necessarily give it something and you don't want to be playing one clinic off against another so you've got to be a bit careful about it this is one of the things that I spend a lot of my time doing consultations with Dr Fertility um, is seeing people at various steps of the journey going oh look I'm thinking about this so I've had treatments and my clinics suggested this and, and I want to just to ask someone independent about it if does this seem a sensible thing um, so we do private consultations um, with a doctor or a fertility nurse specialist or nurse consultants um, through doctor fertility and that's a, an online service as well so I mean from the comfort of your own home when suits you you can arrange to do a, a, a conversation online with a a doctor or a nurse so that's somewhere else people could try there's also before i forget um, there's many um, organizations so for example there's your forum that you have there are also organizations that exist um, that support solo mums or using um, donor embryo uh, donor gametes so that the eggs or sperm so that's some um, something else you could look at um, organizations that, that offer support to patients yeah i think it's so important because i think um getting that emotional support um certainly from the stalk and i mum tribe facebook group that happens my hesitation is sometimes on the medical side of things because i see people asking other people about medication and protocols and i'm hesitant on that because i think everyone's different and um it's it's best to to get that from your clinic or get an independent medical advice on that but all yeah, absolutely. about the process and all everything else totally agree um yeah you've got to be a bit careful about that because there's so the fertility is kind of everywhere now people will blog or set up instagram accounts that document their fertility journey they'll write blogs and they're all really interesting um, and can give great emotional support in that you know that you're not the only person in that boat but when people are sort of starting to say oh well i had this dose of medication i had that um and and it worked then you need to be really cautious because um, that's probably not the best place to be getting your medical advice from. And actually, there's a lot of power from almost the, like these conversations we're having right now of collaboration between patients and professionals. And that's something I'm really keen to, to work on. Absolutely. And I think that's why this is so helpful, because I think it's really clear, independent, uh, professional advice. Um, so I think so many people will find it um, so helpful. So is there anything else that uh, I should have asked you that I've forgotten to ask you that, um, that you think we need to cover? Or is that covered everything? No, I feel like we've covered everything. And it was a really nice uh, conversation. We went around lots of different things. And I'm happy to um, either come back again or answer any questions that people might um, submit via the, 
the podcast and, and your channel so um yeah any help i can be oh thank you thanks so much for your time really helpful if you've enjoyed this episode of the stalker night podcast i'd hugely appreciate if you rate review and subscribe i look forward to seeing you again next week